Hey everyone, I am Dr. Aaron Wheeler. And I'm Dr. Matt Cook. And this is Missio Pop, a podcast on popular missiology where two overeducated white dudes talk about all things in the culture of missions and God's hope for the world. This first season, we're focusing on the task of contextualization, the way in which culture shapes and forms the way we share God's truth. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back, everybody, to season one, episode five of Missio Pop. Matt Cook, my friend, gentleman, and scholar, how are you today? I am doing great. Don't know if I'm a gentleman. Being from the hills <laughs> of West Virginia, I'm a little rough around the edges. I don't know. You ever thought of that, about that before? Like, I work with some very distinguished, gentle, southern gentlemen, you know, academics. And sometimes I just don't feel like I fit in. And <laughs> then I remember where I was born. And I grew up in the hills. I, I mean, I come from good, good, kind people, but boy, I did not grow up in, in the South. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm a Yankee through and through. Mm. Uh, I don't know how you Southern things work. I'm still learning that and getting, uh, enculturated myself into these kind of things. I'm, uh, from South of Detroit in the, uh, rougher side of, suburban Detroit life not so much these days it's super weird to go back to like holidays at my parents house uh I don't know if gentrified is the correct word to use but uh definitely a change in demographic of the city I grew up in but uh I never claimed to be polished uh so you you come from an area where people say it like it is right yeah we're we're, yeah we're real direct so in my southern midwest life now I get in trouble for that quite a bit I know. I'm the same way. I come from like the people where I grew up are wonderful. They do anything for you, but they will tell you if they got a problem with you. Yeah. 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 It's just simpler that way. It it is simpler that way. So it's near the end of the semester here in Tennessee. Um, I have way more papers to grade than I, than I want to think about. Well, don't tell me you're done. No, gosh, no, 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 no. My students will tell you, I, I, uh, I tend to, delay on these things as well but um what i'm asking is we need to figure out we you know by nature in our professions and vocations and careers are hopefully people who can figure things out on an intellectual level that's part of what we're paid to do how long is it going to take us to get chat gtp to grade our papers that's what i'm asking if they can produce papers with ai why can't we grade papers with ai like who do we need to talk to My brother-in-law is a professor of, of computer science. I don't know if he's the guy I need to write an email to, but like, let's get on this, this ball rolling. We need, right. we need AI graders. This is the, it's, let's be clear for any of you who are not in this profession. Grading mm. papers is the worst part of the job. There's no you question. You might have to explain what chat, GTP, whatever. I don't even know the letters. What AI <laughs> is in the academic world. Because until about a month and a half ago, I was not aware of what's going on. Oh, it seemed like in my circles, it was all the talk of um, the winter break was chat GTP okay. and how our students are already using it and the ways we need to adjust for it. I had to change an entire course uh, assignment that happened every other week, because if I did it before, if you just use chat GP, you could knock that thing down in five minutes. Um, it's a real Some thing. Some people might, chat GTP is like, you can enter in a question or whatever, however it works, you can say, hey, answer these questions or yep. write this paper for me. And it'll do it. 
So just yesterday in one of my classes, in my axe class, I have them make some videos, just some kind of fun, like case study sort of videos. And there was this British voice overlaying. Um, they were pretending they were in London. It was funny stuff. And but there's this British accent, British voice narrating their whole video. I said, guys, that is so good. Which one of you did that? And they're like, yeah, AI did that for us. Yeah. We just typed in the words and it, it's because it spoke with inflection and meaning. Yeah. It's a scary world. It's a scary world. Can we get AI to do contextualization for us? You know what? Maybe we could do an interview with a chat bot. And (laughs) we'd probably learn some stuff. That's a scary thing. It actually would be excellent. And we would all learn from it. And probably (laughs) that chat bot needs to be teaching our courses. That's where we're coming from. Like this is coming for the upper class. Like we're just, we're all in trouble. Um, But no, it's a thing. I just need him to grade my papers. That's all I'm asking. Where's the, where's the, where's the grade pink for bot? Get me out of this thing. Um, <laughs> I love teaching. I love students. I love this world, but I, I don't, I don't like grading. Oh, I try to like it, but, or I just try to survive it. I just fall asleep. I can't keep my eyes sure. open. No, a colleague of mine, he said, you need to think of this as a form of discipleship to which I said, get out of my office. <laughs> that's what we, that's what we dealt with. But today uh we are going to in our season-long topic of contextualization we're going to tackle a thorny issue uh which means we're probably not going to do it well but we're going to make an attempt that's all this is we keep low expectations um of a big word a a thorny word um a word that has baggage we'll try to walk through that right up front here and matt give us the word give us the definition get this ball rolling Okay, the word is ethnocentrism. It is. Uh, listeners, you've just, if this is your first time to hear the word, congratulations, you've learned <laughs> the word today. That's what I say to my undergrad students. It's usually the first time they've ever heard it. Yeah. So the technical definition is this. Ethnocentrism is to apply one's un- own culture or ethnicity as a frame of reference to judge other cultures, practices, behaviors, beliefs, and people instead of using the standards of the particular culture involved. Um, yes you don't love that definition i don't love that definition because it's it's you know it's a big word and i feel like the people who come up with big words define big words and they don't realize how unhelpful they are i feel like that's a lot of what's the problem in our world and our field but Mm -hmm. yeah ethnocentrism by nature it's it's got the word ethno in front ethnicity uh there's a racial element to this um and you know the centrism of it as in like this is the center of which i look at things and i think about things and my way of doing things and so uh, at its heart, it's um, about me and my way being better than you and your way. But what I don't love about that definition is, first of all, when we're talking about ethnicity, we're talking about race. There's just baggage here. It's it's hot topic in the worst way possible, uh, alienating you know minimum fifty percent of your audience simply by bringing up the the concept or the terminology or attaching it to it and. You know, I don't know if you know this, but people have opinions on these things. Are you aware of that? I, I, I was aware of that. Okay. So for me, it's simpler to think about this just in the terms of culture. That's oversimplifying yeah. it, but it's, okay, here's me, here's my culture. And I feel as if my culture is superior to other cultures. And what's crazy about this and makes it more than just this academic thing is that everybody does this. Yeah. Like even, I mean, you could go into cultures that are, um, very, very different than ours. And they're judging other cultures, tribal yeah. groups are judging other tribal groups, right? So it's everybody views their culture and their way of do- 
explain things as superior. It's there's something very natural about it. Yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, I encourage everyone that I encounter, live some life overseas, get outside of your box, experience other things, because you will find this everywhere you go. It is a universal human condition. And yeah, it was the same thing for me where I was living, like I was shocked when people are like, oh, that person is from that province. You know, all of those people are thieves. And it's like, what? <laughs> or all of those people are, or everyone knows that, you know, just these, these broad stereotypes that would make Americans blush are just par for the course over Then you're like, okay, this is a real thing. Um, that's the stuff. So uh, while this is, you know, it is about race and ethnicity and culture, all of that is in there. I can't speak today. Uh, we were talking before we recorded this. We have both been sick this last week. Our respiratory systems are crunchy. I think that's the best word we can use for it. Uh, we're going to power through this anyway. But uh, while this is about race, ethnicity, culture, it's about uh, a bigger thing. It's about a an attitude. I would use a very you know, when I talk, walk through this with my students, I use a very broad definition for this, which is is difficult in some places, but I think is a good starting point to introduce and to, to kind of dive into these waters a little bit. With this broader definition, I would say ethnocentrism is an attitude. Let's like start there. It's a perspective. It's an attitude. It's a way of thinking, but it's often an unrecognized one. That's one of the reasons why culture is so powerful is because it's so unexamined. It's just a way of thinking that we don't think about. Like I, I often say that culture is like a pair of glasses. It's something we look through, not something we look at. Mm -hmm. And so ethnocentrism is an attitude often unrecognized of superiority and judgment over another who is different, different in culture, ethnicity, behavior, religious belief, or practice. So it's this way of thinking of like, my way is better than your way. However, that whatever way we're talking about, whatever thing that is, um, and that what's so difficult and dangerous, and especially in this topic of contextualization, so problematic, is that it's not something we even recognize as happening. It's so deeply built in. Yeah. And I think that's why this is significant, especially like with undergraduate students, that they've never thought about this before, especially if they've not experienced much of the world this is deep down inside and they're saying things. I can get a conversation. So I can bait them into saying ethnocentric oh, sure. things without them even realizing it, without them saying things that are ugly or, or even sinful, just their judgments on other cultures and the way they do things. And we all do it. I was so personal confession where we lived in Peru. Um, it was a tourist city. And mm. so over a million tourists came through every year and I suppose as an American living in Peru, um, I was always glad to see Americans, but I was really judgy when I spotted Europeans and I could spot a huh. European from a mile away. I could see him come like, oh, there comes the Europeans. Like, why was I do? What was my problem <laughs> with Europeans as a white guy living in Peru? Yeah. But for whatever reason, there I was in Peru judging um judging these people just about by the because they dressed more professional than the americans sure. in their alabama sure. shirts and tennis shoes but I, I digress no it's the same i mean i heard the story in the opposite direction where an american guy uh that he said he was he was on this road and there was a tour bus that had broken down by the side of the road and he was with some europeans and they were talking about this tour bus and all these people got off and they said, oh, look at those americans and the guy was like you know kind of offended it's like how do you know they're americans and, you know they were 100 200 feet away and he said, I know they're Americans because they all look like they're going to go fix something. And like that was his way to know that Americans were Americans because of just apparently they look like they were going to fix things. But um, 
one of the reasons why we are bringing this up, especially under the topic of contextualization, is because, you know, in the broader world of missions, in the missions world, the missions culture, especially from the American perspective that we are working from, this is kind of baked into the cake. Like this is one of the just unavoidable ingredients of the missions endeavor, because I mean, if we really think about it, like if you're going to cross a culture, if you're going to do the work of missions, if you're going to sell all your possessions and pack things into 50 pound suitcases and go to some other part of the world and live somewhere that you don't belong, you have to have a reason for it. You have to have a motivation. You have to have a drive and desire and ambition. And oftentimes it's because I'm going to bring you something that you don't have. I'm going to take something good that is missing in your place and culture, and I'm going to help bring it to you and create it in your place. And that inherently is something superior, that I have something better that you don't. That's why I'm going here. That's why I've made these sacrifices. That's why I've done this thing. And so that superiority is just baked in. It's part of the thing. And so the way that comes out in ethnocentric ways is just kind of inherent to missions itself. And so it's a, it's kind of the elephant in the room a lot of times. It's, yeah. it's You can see it in campaign groups when you see them on a plane, they all have their t-shirts on, they're matching t-shirts. And they, it's, again, it's a younger crowd and they really believe that they've got something good. Yeah. They've got good news. And right. been, it's been drilled into them. If you really believe this is good news, how could you not share it with these people right. who don't have the good news? And so it's so innate in what we do, but at the same time, you can immediately sense we've got, we're, we're better. Just the very fact right. that we're on a plane with matching t-shirts, we're not going on vacation for spring break. We're going to share Jesus. Like you already sense that they feel superior to everybody else. What's right. it going to be like when they get, when they land the plane and all of a sudden they're in another culture? Um, it's just going to, it's going to be so it's obvious to outsiders, but like you said, it's kind of baked in and we don't see it in ourselves. I find that one of the ways to kind of test this in people is to, you know, give them the scenario of what if a, what if a missionary came to your hometown? What if, uh, you know, a South Korean woman who, you know, watched Fast and Furious and saw the suffering of urban America and decided to come help Americans live a better life for the sake of Jesus? Like, how does that make you feel? There's a part of you that's like, hey, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What are you coming here for? Like, what are you doing? You're going to get involved in our thing. Uh, yeah. because it's like you wouldn't go unless you have something better unless you are bringing something superior and so for someone to do that in the reverse direction feels inherently chafing uh yeah. because of kind even of this, this thing but make like you mentioned urban settings what if they read hillbilly elegy and then watched the netflix movie of it and thought all yeah. oh, the poor rural americans because right. i'm in a more rural setting where outsiders are even less accepted but in this rural setting we're sending out campaign groups all the time yeah sending missionaries out all the time the evangelical church is strong here but boy in a rural setting like this we do not appreciate outsiders coming in and telling us what to do just yeah. you you city people that's that's we struggle with that so imagine if it's right. someone from seoul south korea now you've got urban not not american not southern boy we'd be highly resistant to that but we can't it's that's a great example i never thought of that before yeah, so much of missions, if you want to see it for what it really is, you just flip it around yeah. and then you kind of have to deal with this. And so this inherent superiority is just part of missions. It's part of the culture. It's part of the worldview. 
And so that superiority is going to translate into ethnocentrism in often very subtle, yet powerful and sometimes devastating ways. And so we've kind of got to talk about it. We've got to bring it up. We've got to put it in because it is in many ways the antidote to contextualization. Contextualization can't happen when we have these ethnocentric um, stances that we're working from. Right. But I want to defend people who haven't experienced other cultures and may have some ethnocentrism in them because they've not experienced anything else. We call that monocultural, right? And there are a lot of, our world is decreasing in its monoculturalness. I don't know if that's a word word or not. It's made it up. You can make it so. So a monocultural person is someone who knows only one culture and language. My grandparents in the hills of West Virginia were monocultural. Yeah. They had not experienced other cultures. They had not experienced very many other ethnicities kind of at a minimal level and so that can being monocultural can lead to the assumption that everyone else is like us right. and then that causes us to judge others when all of a sudden people aren't like us the difference between mono being monocultural which there's nothing wrong with it the vast majority of people throughout the history of the world have been monocultural Absolutely. you can probably yeah. make a case that jesus was monocultural right the difference though is is ego right yeah. when ego comes into play that's when ethnocentrism is going to rise up. Yeah, it's this idea that my way of doing things or my understanding of things is the right way. And so when I encounter someone who looks at it differently, has another way of doing things or another way of understanding it, then they're inherently wrong because it doesn't make sense to me, because it doesn't seem natural, because it doesn't seem right. And these are often deeply unconscious things. It's not like we're going through and thinking about it. We just, in the friction of cross-cultural experience, it's kind of like, well, one has to be right and one has to be wrong um, or else I would do it your way. And clearly, because I don't, I'm doing it the right way. And I also, I guess I want to defend Christianity a bit. This this doesn't just happen among Christians. If a group of oh, gosh, no. medical, medical doctors yeah. who were not associated with Christianity at all went on some sort of medical trip to a developing country, they're going to there's probably going to be some ethnocentrism as they believe their way of doing medicine is superior. Yeah. Um, so this is not just a Christian thing. This goes across all fields and probably we don't, we haven't like thought through this is often associated with, with wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, the more money we have, the more likely we're. Probably- that's why we succeeded. Cause we do things better. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen this a lot, even in the social justice world where we're dealing with trafficking or we're dealing with uh, humanitarian aid where it's the same kind of thing. It's like, I'm coming to help you fix the thing you couldn't fix on your own. And so the solution is to do things the way we do things, which um, kind of what we're, we're nailing down here is the opposite of contextualization. Contextualization is not this pride-based closed mind, which is what ethnocentrism is, but instead a, a humble open mind mm-hmm. to say, um, I'm going to look at your way of doing things. I'm going to look at your perspective, your worldview, your understanding, uh, your framework of life and say, where can I find the truth and the good in that? And the core of this is the way you were just describing that made the golden rule come up in my mind. And back to our illustration, how would we want somebody, if somebody, an outsider came into our culture to share something with us, how would we want yep. them to behave? We would want them to, to be very humble. And so as I go into other cultures or interact with people from other cultures, wow, I've got to do everything I can to be a person of humility which again, all of this is, we're saying, be like Jesus. Yeah. Here's the solution to all of this. Yeah. And that's the incredible scandalizing 
work of who Jesus is and what he was, was the humility of, you know, a divine being, um, part of the Trinity, um, as superior as can be with fully justified superiority, uh, coming in humble, coming in lowly, coming in meek and mild. Uh, that is just still scandalous today um, to think of the upside down nature of the kingdom and the way that Jesus went about these things. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. Many people want to make a lasting kingdom impact with their lives, but they're not sure where to start. At Ozark, the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry will equip you for effective ministry rooted in Scripture. This degree is for people serving in a church, nonprofit, or a parachurch organization. With a fully online, 30-hour option, the Master of Arts in Biblical Ministry prepares you to answer the kingdom assignment God has for you. Learn more and apply for free at occ.edu slash masters. How are things going? I mean, really going for your church post-COVID. At Kindred Exchange, we hope your congregation is thriving, that your people are connected to each other, your community is connected to your people, and all of these people are reaching the world with overflowing love and gospel impact. We have a hunch though, because we are also a part of churches, that perhaps things are a bit messier than this. Over the last decade, we experienced new critiques to evangelism and American Christianity in a plurality of ways. Then, a global pandemic cultivated a natural break for many to step away from the faith community they had always known. We want to be a part of what's next for you. With the Mission Audit Weekend at Kindred Exchange, you'll gather with leaders from area churches to ask the tough questions about what's past, what's next, and what's best for the gospel to be an encouragement, not only to your immediate neighbors, but to your neighbors across the globe. Through keynotes, facilitated workshops, and curated moments of networking and sharing, our team of mission experts will guide your church leadership through a two-day assessment of your outreach programs and strategies. It's no secret that people are hungry for good news. Let's make sure we're using relevant approaches to help that good news be received as hope and light in a heavy, fast-changing world. If your church would like to be a city host, let us know, or you can sign up for our next event taking place in Nashville on August 25th and 26th www.kindredexchange.org backslash audits. We've been spending the last uh, couple of weeks looking at some case studies in Acts. We want to specifically bring up again Acts uh, 10 and 15, where we see these realities that play in the early church. Uh, We've got Peter in Acts 10 uh, dealing with Cornelius, this Gentile dude who, uh, you know, Peter gets this vision of this blanket with some uh, non-kosher food where he's told to take and eat. And his response is by no means like, what the heck are you talking about? I'm not touching this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is an, you know, an inherently ethnocentric perspective of like you and your food and your kind and really the culture that's brought with it, the eating culture that's brought with it uh, is, is scandalous to me, forbidden to me, taboo to me. Uh, because my people in my way are the right way and not yours. Right. So I'm not even going to go in your house. Right. And again, to give him some credit here, some of this is based on his theology, right? right. It's not just, it's not just 
oh, they're they're non-Jewish. I don't like them. This comes from a long, long history of not just tradition, but of what what scripture said and right. the way they interpreted scripture. So this is deeply ingrained in him in the way that he interacts with people. Yeah, dietary regulations are a big deal in the Old Testament. I mean, yeah. you know, book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they exist. And they gave very clear instructions about what you can and cannot eat. And so Peter's reaction in this moment is not simply, you know, a dum-dum that needs to change. <laughs> like It's not that easy. It's a guy who we would admire for believing in scripture and wanting to do what God said and trying to be obedient to, to his regulations and laws that he's put on our life. But God has other things in mind and he's requiring a change. We see it in Acts 15 as well, where we've got this, this multicultural church developing, the Gentiles are coming to faith, lots of cool stuff is happening, but then these Pharisees come down and they say, hey, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Unless you follow the law, you can't be saved. Um, it's still this ethnocentric attitude, unless you do things our way, unless you do things the way that we have established and we believe in, then you can't be a part of this thing. Really what I think these two things have in common when we look at Peter and the, and the dietary things and we look at the Pharisees and, and the circumcision is that in both situations, they're saying the path to salvation, the way to Jesus is that you become like me. And in the world of missions, all the kingdom work that we're about, and all the things that we're going to do, this ethnocentric thing of to be a part of this people, to be the people of God, you have to be like me uh, is a real issue we got to struggle with and we got to deal with. Right. And you see it in Acts 10 and Acts 15 in dietary restrictions and then circumcision, right? So these two big issues. What might that look like today? So what are these things, mm -hmm. if we're going to make, think that people must become like me and act like me, what's that going to look like? Like, what are some concrete examples of ways that we want other people to be, to act like me, to act like us? I mean, if we're going to put it in a cross-cultural environment, those are pretty easy. It would be like everything you consider church to be. So a cross-cultural church planning scenario. Um, what is church? Let's start with the day of the week. Like when is a church service going to happen? Um, we are going to automatically go to Sunday morning because that's our tradition. That's what we're comfortable with. That's what we like. Um, but does that make sense in this other place? Uh, to worship and how it happens and what styles and what songs and what language is spoken. And mm -hmm. is a sermon going to be a thing? How is that going to be done? Who's going to do it and why? The entire um, understanding of, of church itself is going to default to what we know and what we, we experience in our way. Um, mm -hmm. So in a cross-cultural situation, that's an easy one to point out is what is church and how does it happen? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the obvious ways that we think through this, especially when it comes to like churches, like what is acceptable behavior when it comes to showing up at a certain time? Mm. Um, and in our culture uh, with our students, they understand that, right? They understand if they're going to make good grades, eventually make money. They have to show up on time and their behavior indicates their or points to their value and so we assume if we're in another culture and time is not as important of a value uh, or a, I don't want to mix up behaviors and values here, but if it, <laughs> if it appears as if showing up, the behavior of showing up on time um, 
is not important to them. We think, well, they don't value, perhaps they don't value worship, right? Yeah. And we can get really judgy. Just we said church the, starts at 10 a.m. Right. Just at the time thing. And even if we say 10 a.m. as Westerners, we say, okay, we said 10 a.m. We're going to give you some, some wiggle room here. And so we're going to even wait till 1030, but good grief. It's 1115 and you're, you're just now showing up to this, to worship God. You yeah. must not care. Yeah. And we've, assigned their behavior specific values that is not at all what's going on there yeah i mean this is part of this larger discussion of i think when dealing with ethnocentrism which you know is an inherent baked in ingredient to the world of missions that we have to separate this confusion of values and behavior i mean you know a shortcut you know in my world i have to define culture all the time i feel like every time i talk to a new group i'm going to talk about something cultural and i have to define what culture is because it's such a big word it's such a big thing uh, you know, in our context, culture wars, you know, and all that that entails, like, uh, it's a confusing word. And so the, the go to like simplistic definition that I give is that culture is shared values leading to shared behaviors. Values are what we think matter. Values are what we think is important. And out of those values come behaviors, because if something matters, and if something is good, and if something is important, and if something is helpful, then we will do things based off of that. So you gave the example of punctuality. Like, you know, I think both of us, you know, in the classes that we teach, you know, if class starts at 9am, for the most part, our students show up at before 9am. Uh, I don't, I, I rarely have a situation where I have to delay starting class before it's designated time, because our students have created a culture. They value time, because they know if they don't show up to class on time, they're going to uh, get a lower score, there's going to be, you know, grade consequences to that which could ultimately result in them failing class or losing a scholarship or something financial involved. And so the desire to get a good grade, the desire to um, not have to pay for this class again or to lose a scholarship involved, that time and money values drive them to be punctual and drive them to show up on time. And so they create a culture where if class, if class is supposed to start at 9 a.m., it starts at 9 a.m. Because their values, the things that are important to them and things that matter, have led to the behaviors that make sense. It's just, you know, a very quick and dirty way of explaining how culture works. Unfortunately, it's so much more complicated than that because most of our values and behaviors are unrecognized. They're unexamined. They're unconscious. We just do them. Like, you know, I, I say to students all the time, you know, the first decision you make it every day is what to do with your alarm clock. That's the very first choice that most human beings make. It goes off. What are you going to do? you're going to make a choice. You're going to have a behavior um, that whether you recognize it or not is based on a value. So in that moment, what do you value more? Do you value getting up so that you can exercise, getting up so that you can, you know, have some devotional time, getting up so that you can have a more relaxing morning before you go do what you got to do? Or do you value nine more minutes of sleep? Like that value, which one is more important than the competition of competing of values is going to lead to your choice and behavior. That's just how culture happens. Yeah, the simplest definition of culture that I heard uh, one time was it's the rules to the game of life, which goes back to the value thing, right? It's what we value. What, what are the rules in my culture? What are the values in my culture that determine how we behave? So the, it's the rules of the game of life that then determine how we live because we're going we're gonna to follow the rules to the game of life yeah. in any given culture. And where this comes into play with contextualization is when our rules are different, when our yeah. values are different, we get really, really judgy. And this isn't just across like national borders, right? This is right here in our own culture as yeah. we think about different ethnicities and the way we're going to communicate with and 
share the good news of Jesus with people from from other cultures right here among us or from other ethnicities who are right here among us. And so you got the the white church who is trying to reach out to the Latino population in their community, and they're going to have some trouble understanding why people can't show up on time. And the Latino population is going to look at the white church and say, oh, wait, why are they here for an hour? And then they are gone, never to see each other again for until three or four days or another week, yep. which that doesn't make any sense to them. And so we both do it. We both judge each other on those values. And it happens across generations. It happens <laughs> urban versus rural. It happens educated, uneducated. It happens white collar, blue collar. Like every way that you can divide people, this conflict is going to exist. And we assume things. And I think um, where this becomes a real problem, especially under this, again, our topic for today of ethnocentrism is when in this, in this, you know, values leading to behavior, we kind of shortcut it and smash it together where the behavior becomes the value where, you know, whatever high-minded concept was driving this choice that we made, that whole thing has been smashed together into one as to where this choice, this behavior is the only way to live this value. It's the only way to make this thing important. And so ethnocentrism kind of thrives in that environment where values and behavior become one. So the example that we have here in Acts 10, um, you know, the only way to value cleanliness, which is something that God, you know, had taught the Israelite people to do. The only way to value that is to avoid unkosher food in every way, shape, and form. Ultimately, don't eat with Gentiles. And so while the value was good and something that God esteems, the behavior saying this is the only way to live it and it's the only way to do it is where the problem existed. Same thing in Acts 15. Righteousness, which is a value of God that we continue out through our life today, um, they believe that obedience to the law was the only behavior that led to righteousness instead of right, the deeper thing that this is changing uh, with Christ in the way that he changes everything. And while we can see that clearly today, this was really, really challenging for the early church because this was a shift for them, not just a shift of tradition. This was a shift. This went against the direct teachings of scripture. They had scripture to back up their point. Yeah. So strong things, biblical arguments. Yeah. And so with this shift, you've got some real trouble. It requires a shift in heart and it requires a ton of humility. Which is hard. Is really hard. And I think we forget that we are struggling with these same things today, that we are dealing with these same issues, probably not as drastic. I can't imagine, you know, Jesus shows up, completely changes the game, living that out within the first generation before you have scriptures to base off of before you have you know a canonized book to work from yeah this stuff is real hairy um and i'm glad we have examples to walk through to look through now but we're still dealing with the same stuff we're still dealing with the same issues um and i think at the heart of it is that same thing is where the values and the behavior have become one where we say the only way to live this value the only way to hold this value is to make this singular choice to have this singular behavior if you don't have the behavior you don't have the value. That's where problems arise. Absolutely. So how do we, what's the solution here? I think we have to keep values and behavior separate at the end of the day. That's super hard. That's, that's hard. no small thing to do. But every time we feel that tension, every time we run into a situation where people are you know, doing it wrong, we have to ask ourselves, what is the behavior and what is the value? Separate those two things. 
because one of the difficult things in dealing with culture is recognizing that uh, values for the most part are often neutral things. They're not right or wrong. They're just desires and drives that aren't bad and of them, aren't good or bad and of themselves. Where they become good or bad is how they're lived out. Where they become good or bad is in the choices. But the values themselves are, are, are kind of neutral things. And so, especially in the missions world, and we talk about, you know, what we're trying to do kingdom-wise, we have to know what are the values of Christ? What are the universal, all places, all times, drives, motivations, ambitions, and desires of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? We have to know what those are, which yeah, and is then, not as simple as it sounds. Right, which then leads us to say, okay, so situation arises, I'm uncomfortable with this behavior, we must reflect. We can't make snap decisions. We can't make snap judgments and we can't verbalize. This goes back to self-control. I can't verbalize what I'm thinking in every moment. Good contextualization says, okay, I've observed this thing. I'm not real comfortable with it. Is this the value of Christ or is this my culture trumping the values of Christ? And so what it takes is it takes reflection. It takes good Bible study and interpretation where I go back and I try to say, okay, here's the value of Christ. Here's what scripture says about this. Is this something we still need to be thinking about today? And we're not always the most reflective of peoples because we just like to be right. Um, we're not good with dialogue and back and forth and trying to understand points of views. There's all kinds of reasons this is hard, not excuse, but it takes reflection and humility and listening. Yeah, superiority is one heck of a drug, and it's easy to get addicted, um, mm. and that's what's going to go against us. But yeah, I think you're right. Hermeneutics is at the heart of this biblical interpretation, because the Bible is sticky. Paul, when he's writing letters to churches, is teaching both values and behavior. He's not simply doing one or the other. He's not, you know, getting nice, neat boxes to say, okay, here are the values of Christ that are important, and and you know, to you Ephesians, here's some behaviors that need to follow. It's not for everybody everywhere, but just for you Ephesians, consider this. Like, Paul's not dividing things neatly on this. These are all interwoven together, and 2,000 years later, we're hopefully making good choices on how we understand and divide these things, but it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. um, the values and behaviors are going to be different, and so when that conflict arises, when somebody does something that inherently makes us feel angry or upset, or this is wrong. We have to say, okay, what is the behavior? What is the specific thing that's happening here? And then ask, what is the value behind that? What's driving it? Uh, a good example that I heard recently uh, in, a, in another thing I was doing, we did an interview with this church planner in West Africa. And he was talking about some of the challenges that he faces uh, crossing cultures in West Africa and planning churches. And he said he was in this one village where they had this great taboo that on Tuesdays, you couldn't uh, farm on Tuesdays. You couldn't do any farm work or anything on Tuesdays. And that was, I can't remember the exact reason, but it was creating a big problem in this church planning effort that they were making. And so you had this, this problem. You could come in as a Christian and say, that's dumb. You can farm on Tuesdays, get over it. You know, there's no scriptural basis for this. We need to let it go. Uh, that would be an ethnocentric way of handling that problem. Uh, mm -hmm. But this guy was, was a, was a, had great missiology. And he said, he went through this process. He said, okay, what is going on here? Here's the behavior. We've defined it. No farming on Tuesdays. He said, what is this about? What is driving it? What's the motivation behind these things? So he started investigating. He started asking people. He started getting stories behind it. And it turns out that the value behind this was caring for nature at the end of the day. 
that they felt like farming on Tuesdays, as it had grown through generation after generation, farming on Tuesdays had become the behavior in which to care for nature and not overwork the land. Mm. And so he's like, okay, the value for this is caring for, you know, in the Christian perspective, God's creation. We can get behind that. We can, we can value that. We have scripture that says that this is a good thing that we need to do. So let's go back to the value. Let's talk about how we as a Christian people, you know what? We value the same thing. We think this is important too. Our holy book tells us that this matters and have the conversation there. And he said that broke everything going forward. They says, because yeah. we've, you know, and in a conversation, in a dialogue from a humble position, we could say, hey, this is important to us too. Let's talk about some different ways that we can live this. Let's talk about some different behaviors that could come out of this value. And the dialogue was was so much different after that. Yeah, I mean, what you've just described is Hebert's critical contextualization process, yeah. right? For the most part. Um, so people have been talking about this and trying to figure out how to do this for a long, long time. Um, so I don't want we don't want anybody to think that, oh, it's 2023. We've just now figured this out. Um, people have been talking about this and figuring this out for a long time. We've just struggled to implement it and listen to those voices that say, hey, there are ways to there are ways to think about other people's culture and see the values behind their behaviors and not immediately jump all over them as if they're doing something wrong just because it's different than the way we do it. It's almost like what we need to do is take the situation in all of its controversy and high blood pressure and you know everything that's going on with it and let's like let's let's keep walking backwards until we find the point of agreement let's keep walking backwards behind this hot topic to find the place where we actually have common ground let's let's work mm-hmm. backwards until we can do that and so i think you know we're talking cross-cultural environments we're talking the world of missions but if we took a domestic situation here in the states if we took whatever you know from the day we're recording this podcast to the day it comes out, I'm sure there's going to be a new hot topic that is the big controversy that every you know political pundit talking head is going on and on about. And ask yourselves, like, what is the behavior there? What is the actual thing that we're talking about? And then say, why would one group think this is important? And why would one group be against it and think it's actually hurting our society? Let's walk backwards, back, back from this behavior until we find the value underneath it. What is the value? Can we agree on that value? Um, Do we both think this value is important? We just have opposite ways of thinking it's lived out. Where can we find the common ground? Where can we find the compromise? Where can we ultimately find Christ in this thing? It's possible that doesn't happen. I'm not going to say that's a universal thing that works for everything, but it's amazing how common that works if we're willing to walk through the process. But that's good contextualization with any group of people, whether we're talking about a culture, whether we're talking about a religion, right? We're trying to find bridges where perhaps there's something similar. I literally just got out before I came to to talk to you on Zoom, talk to you on Zoom, talk, (laughs) whatever we're doing right now, this podcast, I was teaching world religions. And today we did neo-pagan religions and Wicca, which, you know, students are like, oh, this is, they didn't know anything about it. And it's so much fun. Well, at the end of the day, what's the solution for connecting with somebody who maybe has been practicing neo-pagan religion it's relationship and trying to understand where they're coming from it's trying to understand why what are they why are they doing this and then maybe even discovering oh wait they're not satan worshipers there's it's and so it's erasing the misunderstandings perhaps understanding why they do it and understand that they're kind people um who are just seeing the world in a different way right now and maybe we can help to point them uh, back to back to jesus but it's all about understanding and relationships 
Yeah. And it's that, it's that question of why it's that curiosity to understand what got to this point. Cause behind every decision was, was 10 different background stories and 10 different situations. Oh. And we got to be willing to walk that road with people to get where they are and to understand the why and to understand the motivation and to understand what's behind this. Um, that's takes a humble posture. It takes, you know, long suffering patience, uh, to be able to do that. Cause you got to investigate and you got to be willing to hear stories. And, um, it is funny, especially when we get to controversial hot topic issues, none of which we are mentioning right now. <laughs> mm, nope. The, uh, that sometimes when you do that investigation of why, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it this way? What's behind this choice? You'll find sometimes that people are like, you know what? I don't remember. I don't know why we do it this way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. find that, that that motivation, that history has somewhere been cut off, been lost completely. Yeah. I mean, the, this is such a terrible illustration, but in, again, my dad described one of the places that he first started like doing some ministry and preaching a little country church, middle of nowhere before he had any, had gone to school or anything. Um, they had a, like a, a white cloth that covered the Lord's supper, mm. um, on the table up front, there's a white cloth that covered the whole thing. And it was a big deal. And somebody suggested moving it and everybody kind of lost their minds somebody started asking some questions. Why in the world do we, do we do this? And it went back to, well, it was before we had central heating and air and oh. the windows were open and we don't want flies on huh. this, but it became such a strong tradition that yeah. any thought of removing it was problematic. So again, that's just a really simple illustration, yeah. even in our own culture, how we've got to ask questions and ask the why. And when we discover why um, we sometimes discover that the original why has nothing to do with us now. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people are willing to kind of release a little bit. They're willing to let go of that iron grip when we find out, oh yeah, this is completely irrelevant now because the situation that started, it doesn't exist anymore. And so in that situation, we can have a long conversation about reverence for the Lord's Supper. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a real thing. I'm on board with that. We need to have reverence for sacraments and um, the way that a church body revolves around these things. It would be sacrilegious not to. Um, but this white sheet isn't the only way and it takes a long time to walk down that road and it takes a lot of patience, but willing to investigate and willing to ask why, uh, is kind of our way to it. So I'm going to get paint paint with broad strokes here, but I feel like kind of the advice I would give in, in this world of ethnocentrism in this, you know, controversy that we've looked at Acts 10, Acts 15, um, the hornet's nest that contextualization stirs up. Um, I give three pieces of advice. I talked about these last week. I'll talk about them again is number one. We, we hold tightly to the values of Christ to do that. We have to know what they are. If you don't know the values of Christ, that's on you because you're not reading your gospels. You're not sitting in the words of Jesus, looking at his stories and his teachings and his actions and saying, based on what I just read, based on, Matthew 5, whatever it is, what seems to be most important to Jesus in what he teaches and what he says and how he works and how he interacts with people around him, what seems to be most important to him? Figure out what those are, you know, make yourself a list, Uh, you know, go through Mark and see what are the top five values of Jesus based on all those things. You need to know what those are and hold tightly to those in this, you know, controversy and contextualization. What is cultural? What is universal? Like there's where we find our universals. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then the choices that we make out of those values, we have to hold loosely. The behaviors that come from them, uh, we've got to be willing to let go of. We've got to be willing to hold in this, in this relaxed state to say, you know what? This behavior may work for us at this place in time, or it may have worked in a previous place in time, but I don't know that it's going to work going ahead in the future. I don't know that it's going to work right now. There may be other ways of doing this. And we're open to having that conversation and willing to do those things. And then ultimately, that our goal is not maintaining a way of thinking. Our goal is not doing it our way. Our goal is not being better. Our goal is following Jesus and that hope and trust that that's going to be enough. And there's freedom in what you've just described. Yeah. Because it not only does it allow us to contextualize more effectively, it frees us from the baggage that we sense in our own lives. And it frees us from our own traditions and it frees others from our judgment. So I, I just hear the word in all of that um, freedom. Yeah. Freedom to freedom to submission in Christ. It's amazing how yeah. becoming submitting completely to Jesus ultimately brings freedom. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the irony of, of Christian freedom is it's not freedom of to indulge. It's not freedom to do things my way. It's not freedom to do whatever I want. It's freedom to serve. It's freedom to love. It's freedom to have the fruits of the Holy spirit born in you. That's what that freedom does. If the freedom's not producing that, then it's the wrong kind of freedom. Yeah. Uh, struggles with an ethnocentrism, Matt, what are some solutions? What are, what are some ways that we deal with this inherent problematic superiority problem we face? Yeah, we've hinted at it already, but we've got to be people of empathy. We've got to be willing to look at things from other people's perspectives and learn to appreciate their perspectives and their cultures and their ways. So I want to see things from other points, other people's points of view, which means I've got to get to know people, develop relationships and ask why. Yeah. I, uh, I was thinking as you're talking about this, um, I've had to learn to do this a little bit on a theological level. Um, I'm going to, if I can get a bit spicy here, are we ready? Mm, yes. Um, let's go. I have had to learn in my theology to have a little mental folder and that mental folder is called that's neat. That's the title on the folder. <laughs> that's neat. And what I put in that folder <laughs> are the things theologically that I just don't really know what to do with. Like a lot of stuff, you know, things that happen in the old Testament, I'm not going to name anything that happens in the old Testament, but, but various you know, theological positions or mm -hmm. things that happen in scripture that I'm, I'm comfortable with. I just put in the, that's neat folder. And I'm like, you know what? That's neat. I'm not going to label that as good or bad. I'm not going to label this as like, you know, something that we need to push up or destroy. I'm just going to put it in the, that's neat folder. And that's the end of my judgment is to say, that's neat. And I'm going to move on because I just kind of have to. Uh, and I think if we take that approach to life, especially when we're in a cross-cultural environment and we see something happen, to not label it good or bad, but to say, hey, that's neat. You know, that's, that's neat. People show up 25 minutes late to my meeting. That's neat. <laughs> people eat things that I cannot imagine eating. Yeah. That's neat. That's neat. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a label free box. Mm, in which we can put it. things to deal with later. That's empathy. That's good. Um, I think connected to that, and we've talked about the values and behaviors thing already, but we just want to be learners. Yeah. If we are ignorant, we're far more likely to fall into ethnocentrism and judgmental attitudes towards others. So the more I learn, the more empathetic I am, and that leads me to learn about others. 
it's going to allow me to see the world in a different way, which is, that's the nature of travel. I wish everybody could see the world is when you see the world and you experience people and develop relationships cross-culturally, boy, it just blows up our perspectives on ourselves. It changes everything. So yeah, yeah we got to be learners. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's just an approach to life. It's an approach to relationships. It's like, if we have people in our lives that are, go- if our goal is to fix them, we're not going to be a very good friend. We're not going to be a very good spouse. We're not going to be a very good teacher. Like if we're looking at, you know, like I talked about Americans, we can recognize them because they look like they're going to fix something. Uh, we kind of got to recognize that we approach a lot of life that way. If I'm going to fix mm-hmm. things and I'm going to fix you uh, instead of I'm going to just learn in a neutral space who you are and what you're about and what matters to you. Um, I mean, this is, you know, not a new thing that anybody's ever said before, but just avoiding the stereotypes of other cultures is a big one. Uh, stereotypes are hard because they're rooted in truth. They always are. Um, but they're just not helpful. The Mm -hmm. slower we can get to a point of judgment, the more we can hold things in neutral space. Um, the more we can just be like, I don't know what this is and I don't have to know. And that's okay. And it may not be right or wrong. It may not even be connected to the values of Jesus that here in the South, for somebody who comes from the Northeast, boy, we, they're viewed as rude or overly, well, what if they're just, they're honest? It's not rude. It's not connected to the values of Jesus. It's just their, it's just culture. Yeah. We're so quick to stereotype people, even in our own culture, people from certain regions. Sure. Sure. What else? What are some other solutions to ethnocentrism we need to bring up? I mean, really, this is all about contextualization. It's what this whole podcast is about but people love their own cultures Hmm. right that's why they're ethnocentric as well we're all we all have a bit of this people love their own cultures but as outsiders if we're going to share this good news that we believe we want to share with them then we've got to do so within the context of their cultures and we've got to i think we have to learn to love that culture and their culture if we're going to be effective at this at all and the the only way we're going to contextualize well and overcome ethnocentrism is if we learn to love other cultures and that's hard sometimes especially if you're in the middle of culture shock yeah 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 i think that's kind of the a litmus test that every missionary needs to have is do i love the people i'm with mm. like do i genuinely love this culture and this people who i'm working with and at the same time to give yourself grace for the moments that you just don't <laughs> yeah. when you're having those days when you're having those seasons even if we're going to be uh-huh. honest uh yeah. it may be time for a vacation you need to you know yep Go back to your uh, your employee handbook of furlough policies. You know, when, when are you due for one? Uh, these kind of things to maintain our healthy space. But yeah, if, if we're not, lo- if we don't genuinely love these people and who they are, uh, regardless of ways things get better, if we can love them where they are right here, right now, that's what Jesus did for us. And we yeah. have to be able to do the same things for them. Mm-hmm. Well, Anything I mean, else to wrap this up? Yeah, I mean, all this is all about, we just need to be more like Jesus. I mean, that's it. Yeah. We, I don't know why I mean, we have we a podcast. Just we just cancel the podcast. Right. Everybody we're should. We're good. Contextual. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. No. The great contextualizer. Mm-hmm. Last thing I would say is just, you know, we need to approach culture like Jesus did. Um, sometimes Jesus challenged culture. Like he was a real big, you know, you, you don't get, you know, they'll joke. You don't get crucified on accident. <laughs> uh, you have to really be pushing the boundaries for people to react that way. And so Jesus absolutely challenged culture, uh, but he also cooperated with it. Um, he lived in it. He worked within it. He, you know, pointed out the parts that were right and good and needed to be elevated. 
So there's a mix of challenging culture. There's a mix of cooperating with culture, but the ultimate goal was always redemption. Yeah. The ultimate goal was always um, seeing God and his values lived out in this place. Yeah. But it's crazy to me that like he made, he would make both sides mad. As you think about like the yeah. culture war of the first century, the yeah. Romans and the Jews, and somehow like he, he at times cooperated, but other times he made both sides mad. At the yeah. end of the day, his priority was, was the kingdom. Like it wasn't any particular culture. It was, we're going to, we're going to live out the kingdom of whatever culture we're in. And that's beautiful. And what we're ultimately called to today. Yep. So, you know, we can make that our own boundaries. If everyone likes you, you're doing it wrong. If everyone hates you, you're <laughs> probably doing it wrong. <laughs> you got to be somewhere there in the Christ-like middle. All right, Dr. Cook, it's been well as always. Yes, uh, sir. We are going to, in the next couple of episodes, tackle uh, a bigger topic of contextualization, which is what happens when it goes wrong. I think um, in this topic, sometimes people have some fear and trepidation because they don't want to mess it up. This is, you know, the gospel and truth and important things, and we don't want to cross a culture and screw these things up. And so uh, the two big, you know, dangers of contextualization are, uh, on the one hand, syncretism, where we contextualize too far and we lose truth. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, irrelevancy, where we don't contextualize enough and this thing doesn't make any sense. And so issue of irrelevancy, we'll tackle that first. Issue of syncretism, we'll tackle that second of uh, kind of where contextualization runs off the rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll carry us through for the next two weeks. And this has to at least a, a couple, it's going to get spicy a little bit. Sure. It has sure. to. This, this I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It'll be fun. If we don't offend you over the next two episodes, then you need to find another podcast. That's what that's right. If yeah. we don't isolate you in some way and <laughs> make you love us in some way. It's been fun so far, but yeah, we'll, yeah. All right. All right. Good stuff. We'll see you next time. <laughs>